0: On January 21st in 2017, a crowd of over 400,000 people took to the streets of Washington, D.C. to protest the inauguration of the President of the United States. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and today on Ideas at the House, you'll hear from one of the fearless founders of the Women's March on Washington, Tamika Mallory.
1: It is really, truly just um, an honour, a high honour for me to be invited to partake in this just amazing event, the antidote, coming from America, you know, that our country has had its ups, its downs, its ups, its downs again. And we we constantly are on the merry-go-round. And that's not like anything different from many of our lives. We all are on a merry-go-round constantly. There have been some great lows in our country, and one of them we all know about, and that is waking up on November 9th and realizing that our country had, in fact, no matter what you believe, some people may be folks who support uh, the current president that we have, but I think that what we see by those who are in the street and also the fact that you invited me here today, I'm going to tell you the truth, and that is that we don't support homie, so. uh, (laughs) So, but you know, that's just me, it's my thing, but again, you invited me, so that's my truth. Um, And so waking up on on November 9th was really uh, a hard pill to swallow. I had to look at my son, who at the time was 17 years old. I looked him in his face and I knew that he already was an endangered um, individual, a human being in America, but to look at him knowing that the person who had been elected to be president of our country is someone who could care less about black people, brown people, females, women rather, uh, gay people, Muslim people, just anyone who is different and other than himself and to believe that he was going to be responsible or he is responsible for upholding our civil liberties was a very, very difficult space. It wasn't that there was something new that was going to happen though, and I think this is important, it wasn't that there was going to be this new thing to take place because I'm one person who's been involved in a movement for 20 years or most of my life. And of course, I know the history of the incredible freedom fighters who have been in the struggle before me. And so not that you know, having this new president was gonna be a different thing because oppression and racism, systemic racism is something that we deal with um, on a daily basis and an hourly basis uh, in our country and all over the world. But I think that was just it that what so many of us had been fighting against, just in a click of a few votes, actually uh, was now in the leadership. What we had been fighting so hard against Was now the president. And to be quite honest with you, aside from the politics of it all, just having to look at the guy every day was like, (laughs) God bless, you know? And I, I, I often say that it's like if I could take that emoji when you're like rolling your eyes up in the air and just like put it all over everywhere, that's exactly how I felt. Like, I can't believe this. But the other thing that was difficult was having to swallow the big pill of the 53%. And I'm sure you know, many of you know about this 53%, because everyone ran and said, how did this happen? Wow, we didn't think that this man could become president. How did it happen? And we found out that a lot of things happened, but one thing was that 53% of white women who voted in the election voted for Donald Trump. And it was a very, very difficult pill to swallow, that once again in our history, This person who had been so derogatory, the the statements, the rhetoric, the sexism, and everything that was coming out of those who even support him, could become the president by having people to vote for him, and particularly women. It was a very, very tough pill to swallow. And I'm sure you all understand the significance of this. If you have done any research about American history, you will find that the relationship between women of color and white women is very is a very strained one, is a very difficult space, and particularly black women as it relates to feminism, feminism in our country, uh, something that has not properly represented women of color. And particularly, again, black women have not felt that, uh, that white women have really gone hard, if you will, for us and our rights. It is as if when it came to racial concerns, that if we had fought those racial concerns together, we would be in a better place in our society. It, is, it seems as if we fell short there. Not so much that it seems as if, we definitely fell short. Uh, White women have not necessarily been at the table. And so again, it was a very difficult pill to swallow. So then the next thing is that on November 9th, (laughs) I'm sitting there and I'm thinking the whole world is coming to an end. And I get a call to be a part of the Women's March on Washington And guess what? It was the baby of a white woman. (laughs) So once again, the emojis going off in my head, rolling my eyes back saying, what in the world? How did we get in this space at this time? And I could have sat there and said, no, I won't be involved. Because, you know, and many women of color did. Many women of color said, I will not support this march because a white woman called it. And there should have been a march in the white community before calling on us to join you after something so devastating has happened. The betrayal and the wounds are too deep and we will not support you, we will not be a part of this march. And I could have taken that position and in fact, there were people who said it and I supported their opinion and their feeling and and their desire to stay away from the march. However, I knew that I could sit on one side of history or I could be on the right side of history, which was in a place where the 53% was important, but there were other numbers that were more important. Let me tell you about those numbers. 40% of people murdered by law enforcement are unarmed black men in our country. I had to be concerned about that number more. I had to be more concerned about the fact that 2.4 million people were are slated to lose health care if Planned Parenthood is defunded. I had to be concerned about the fact that 50.4 million children, over 50 million children, would be impacted by our public school system losing government funds. So I had to do the thing that felt right for me, even though it didn't necessarily feel right because I wanted to be selfish and in my feelings, But I really had to look at the situation in the whole and not do what had been done to us that I had to step to the plate, and no matter how I personally felt, I needed to be a part of the collective struggle. And so therefore, between you know myself and, and Linda Salsor, Carmen Perez, and those of you mentioned Bob Bland, and so many people, Brianne um, and the list goes on, Janae Ingram, I could say so many folks who came together to make January 21st possible despite all of our differences. And not because we believed that marching was going to solve all of the problems, but there is a symbolism in each person taking up a smaller piece where we all come together with different stories, different backgrounds, um, where we're organizing alongside one another to form a collective. People moving in the same direction, against the tides of oppression and really trying to create and and challenge the system and create sustainable change. If we want to make it in our society and change our society and change the world, I believe, and I speak about it everywhere that I go, that it must be done from a place of truth. We have to look at ourselves and our actions, our lack of actions, and our silence, and ask how it has contributed to creating a platform for the Donald Trumps of our world, or in this case, the Pauline Hansons. (laughs) Because the problem typically starts before the beast awakens. There is a buildup and you can see it coming and people are ignoring it and that is how we have these really traumatic situations and experiences to take place. Think about the times that you have personally turned the blind eye to things that matter to your neighbor. Things that didn't really matter to you because it wasn't your situation. People have almost always turned the blind eye to blatant injustice. The abuse of power and oppression as long as it is not on as long as it is not on our street corner it 's not in our homes it's not our children it's not our community it's not us, so therefore we don't have to pay attention to this issue and that makes me very angry sometimes. I have to be very honest with you and when you 're working with people of color and they seem to be angry, one of the things that really makes us the most upset is when people say, I didn't know that was happening. We always look around and say, where were you? Because this world is like, even though it's big, it's not that big. It's all in your community. On the street after, after yours, the same community, the street over from yours, there are probably people who are experiencing extreme poverty, experiencing police brutality, experiencing infant mortality, and other very, very serious issues. The fact that your eyes are closed, your blinders are on, you don't want to see it, is so unfair to all of us because we need one another in order to make our society more just. Now, right now, in this country, as we sit here today, like my own, like the US, it is rooted in diversity. And there is a war that is currently being waged against some of our brothers and sisters, and that is our Muslim brothers and sisters. I spoke about Pauline Hansen, And now I read on a website, I think it's called One Nation, um, <laughs> where she made a statement that Muslims, or suggested something like Muslims are just by you, just because you are a Muslim, it is the same as being a terrorist. That's a very dangerous statement. That being said, and knowing that that is the mindset of someone who wants to lead this country, it makes you ask the question Have I turned a blind eye? Because the beast is already awakened. So, what do I do? to address it and get in front of it before it ends up being like a plague, really just creating disease all over our nation. This is not the time to turn a blind eye. It is actually the time to open your eyes. Then I was doing some more research and I found that there was a debate in the family court system here about it being more accommodating for men. Now, I want to pick on this particular person, so I won't say her name anymore, but you know who I'm talking about. They say that she says that the system needs to be kinder to men and that women who report violent crimes in many cases are making frivolous claims. Ladies and gentlemen, the beast is up. It's moving around, and it is really a danger to your community. Now is not the time to turn the blind eye. It is now more than ever that you don't just open your eyes but then you have to actually get up, say something about what you see and do something about it. And even if you have never fought for social justice before, you should be moved by one supreme understanding. And that is that we are all in this together. On January 21st, it was a great and historic moment where five million people and their families came together to stand against bigotry and hate in the Women's March on Washington. This moment will be forever ingrained in American history and in world history. But in the aftermath, it was not that of the march that mattered. It is that of us creating movement and shifting culture after the march. So we knew we had to go to work. We created an organization called Women's March. And we have continued to work since then. Even our global operation is working to organize and coordinate all over the world so that we do not lose the momentum that we found on January 21st. A part of sort of shifting the moment to the movement was getting people to work on issues that they have not been traditionally involved with, nor have they been concerned with. This is called intersectionality. Now, there is a woman by the name of Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. She's a civil rights advocate and she is also a professor at the University of California. She coined the term intersectionality, which suggests that racism, sexism, classism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, and belief-based bigotry do not act independently of each other. They are not separate. Instead, these forms of oppression interrelate, creating a system of oppression that reflects the intersection of multiple forms of discrimination. And the simple way of saying that is that it's not one or the other, it's all happening at the same time. So when we talk about methods for resisting and bridging gaps, it must start from a place of intersectional eyes. You must see it from the lens of intersectionality. We must be intersectional in that understanding that all of our issues are all of our issues. We must have integrity in our work and in our walk. For example... Educators cannot teach with integrity if they are not concerned about whether or not all children, all children, are receiving quality education. So if you are a teacher, and you go to school every day and you do such an incredible job, but you are not concerned with the fact that maybe just a few miles away, there are students who do not have access to the same quality education as wherever you are teaching, if you are not engaged in that struggle and a part of that process to make sure that there is equality, then you are, in fact, a part of the problem. Lawyers cannot practice law with integrity if they ignore a criminal justice system that has recently convicted a woman for having an abortion. I read that that happened here recently. And physicians cannot practice medicine with integrity if they pretend that certain people aren't ailing and dying more and more because they have no access to health care. And lastly, you cannot say that you are concerned with the ills of society and not concern yourself with the fight for the aboriginals rights. Just as the Native American population in the United States, the Aboriginal people of Australia have been stripped of their land and their liberties. They have been forced into a condition where their plates are empty. They are void of adequate healthcare, education, and equal wages. And even if our plates may be running full and overflowing, and we do care about some people, We still must be staunch advocates and fight on behalf of those who suffer at the hands of injustice. We have to care, ladies and gentlemen. We must be integrity driven and we must be intersectional in the way in which we approach personal, professional, and national politics. So the idea is that no one group can make it no one group can change, no one group can rise higher than the other, that we are all in this together. One of the greatest things about the Women's March was the signs. One of the signs read, there was a black woman who had a sign up, and it says, hey, white women, don't forget, 53% of you voted for Donald Trump. She was holding her sign up, while many of the white women who looked like the folks she was was talking about were standing all around her. There was another woman who had a sign that says, I've been here since the 60s and I can't believe I still have to fight for this shit. (laughs) (laughs) These were the signs all around. People with signs of hope, signs of despair, signs of anger, signs of emotion, signs of just straight up being pissed off. But they were all mixed in together and they figured out a way to exist in the same space at the same time on that day without pushing one another out. They pulled one another in. We have to figure out how to tie all of these feelings together. How to be okay with existing in a space where feelings vary and it is not okay for you to silence someone else's voice. Understanding that what we're up against, this system that seeks to oppress women, people of color, children, and those who believe in freedom, is a machine that seems all too powerful, all too big, all too smart, all too coordinated. But I do not believe that a system is more powerful than unified people. You know, when I woke up on the, women, the morning of the Women's March, I was filled with an incredible amount of determination. Brianne will tell you, we had been through hell. For two months and some change, we had been through so many sleepless nights, so many people telling us that we could not do it. People telling us that we would never be able to accomplish what we eventually accomplished. Men contacting us to tell us that we we were incapable of putting something this large on and that we needed them to take over because we did not know how to do it. We had to deal with that every single day. People applied for permits on our behalf that we didn't even know. People signed contracts with folks that we never even talked to. There was so much happening, and at the same time, we were receiving death threats every day, particularly as I lift my sister Linda Sarsour's name, a Muslim Palestinian woman. She caught serious, serious hell throughout the planning, but not as much in the planning as after the march. All of us receiving the negativity of society telling us what we could not do. But I woke up that morning feeling very determined. However, I was conflicted inside. I often tell this story about this moment where I was standing on the stage. And behind us, there was a hill. And there were women with pink hats coming down the hill all day long. And at one point, someone called my attention and said, look at the hill and the person, Paola Mendoza. She was crying, and she looked at me and said, look, Tamika, look, this is so amazing. And for a moment, I started to feel really excited. You know, my eyes got all watery. And then I just became very, very sad because I looked over and saw Trayvon Martin's mother standing there. And I realized even after she and I had had a conversation about the fact that many of the people there were never present for her son. But I realized that if I was the latest victim, the person that at this point everyone was coming to to say, I'm so proud of what you've been able to do, people had just been all over us saying, we are so thankful that you took one for the team and you are organizing this incredible day. So I was loved in that moment. But I realized that just a few months ago, a few months before Donald Trump became president, if I was the latest victim of any type of injustice, those who showed up in Washington, D.C., those who came out in Australia and other places around the world would not have shown up for me. And it was a very, very dark feeling that came over me because I know that we have so much work to do. So as I went to the podium, the lectern, as you all say, and I began to speak that day, at first I had a great speech and I was going to say some things that I thought was just encouraging and we're going to fight and we have to fight back. And I realized that morning that I could not say those things. I had to tell the truth on behalf of people who look like me. And the truth that I told that day was that my ancestors literally nursed their slave masters. And even today, we are still taking care of a racist system that will not see us be great. I told the women and others who were there that we need to take care of one another. And when we feel like we are not doing a good job of that, we need to put aside our differences and stand together and stand for the most marginalized people in our society. At the time, I didn't know how large the crowd was that I was speaking to because our cell phone service was down. And so I had no way of seeing the great marches that, were, that was happening all over the world. So I thought I was just speaking to the people standing right there. Later, I found out that people heard us again by the tune of millions. I mean, the five million people didn't even hear us at all because many people couldn't even get close enough to hear anything that we were saying until they got home. There were people who were sitting on their couches and people who were with their family members in places that we may never know, who listened to me speak about the truth That day. The power of standing there and being able to say things that I know made some people feel very uncomfortable, but that uncomfortable place is exactly where we must put ourselves every day if we are going to change what we see happening in our world. And there is power in us standing together on principle that the time for us to separate from one another, for it to be you against me, or just you and not me has ended because we are all in this boat together. We must show up for one another because racism is racism is racism. And sexism is sexism is sexism. And oppression is oppression is oppression. But ladies and gentlemen, love is love. And it can heal all things if we choose to love others as we love our own. Because we know that if we bend on equality and equity on one side, it will break on another side. So the time for us to discover a new resistance where we are all standing strong together is right now. We don't have a choice. We must resist as we have never resisted before. And I came to Sydney, Australia, I traveled a very long way from home to say to you all that we must be unified in this resistance movement that it is important that we reach across the waters, that we reach out to one another, that we encourage one another, that we encourage our Women's March leadership from this area, and that we continue to fight together because when one of us does well, the rest of us will do well. And if the most marginalized communities are lifted, the entire world will be lifted. So again, resist like you have never, resisted in your life. Let us leave here determined and unified. Let us leave here deciding that our brothers and sisters are important and that we are our brothers and sisters keeper. Thank you.
2: Mika, when I read out the, the quote from Senator Gillibrand at the beginning, there was part of that quote that really has stuck with me, and that's "She never gave up." Mm. You've- you've devoted your life to some of the most intractable intractable problems in America, gun violence, women's rights, racism. Do you ever feel like giving up? Well, I mean,
1: I don't think I I can. I don't really have that luxury. I have a son who is now 18 years old that I'm raising um, as a single mom. And the idea of giving up on him is impossible. I realize that all the issues that you name are things that directly impact his life. And so if I'm not just doing it for the world, I have to be doing it for my own child um, and, and for his children. And so giving up is not really a, an option.
2: So you mentioned that... That doesn't mean that it doesn't get hard as hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do in those yeah. moments? Like, how do you? I mean, you know, I, I curse and I,
1: <laughs> I cry and I um and and I have moments where. But you know what we do have is a great sisterhood. Um, we share together, you know, Mm -hmm. Brianne didn't have to travel all the way here to be with me, but she did. And um, so many others, we get together and we have very, very honest conversations with one another about how we're feeling. Um, And it's important, you know, and and I also have, you know, I realize that it's not all on me, you know, it's not, God didn't put me here to be the one person to sprinkle some dust and the whole world gets fixed. It doesn't work like that. All we can do is each person do your little part, and that makes up a bigger part.
2: I, I read after the march so many women and heard so many women saying that when they joined the march, it was the first time they've joined a march. Yeah. And uh, they felt so much energy, and they wanted to do something to change. Yeah but they didn't know how, and I, and I still see that sometimes in, you know, my role as opinion editor, the, peop- the pieces I get pitched and the comments, people are like, what do I do? What do I do? Right. What do you say to people? What's,
1: what's the first thing? So, you know, one of the things that we've done with Women's March in the States is that over 5,500 huddles have been developed for people that are just like that, people who don't know where to go, and sometimes, you know, as activists who are sort of seasoned, we forget. We, we're like running down the street and then we're like, oh, shoot, we left the whole pack behind. You know, we need to go back and get everyone and bring people together. And so I think that as activists, we have to look into that more. You know, ways that people can literally take baby steps in order to get involved and figure out where they fit in. I do think that there are small things that people don't realize they can do. Folks want to sort of get involved with with the big fight mm. they want to like we're gonna take this president out we're gonna do but then you don't even know who your local senator is or your local district attorney so we tell people all politics are really local because once you put people in place in your local area who who support bigotry it only rises and it becomes bigger they begin to sort of implant themselves so you have to fight on a local level so that we have the power to push back against some of these big issues. Mm. And that's really how we're trying to train people. Focus locally, get involved on a local level, join an organization, because there are so many organizations that can actually help you uh, to figure out how to navigate. Too many people want to start their own organization as soon Mm. as they get involved. They're like, I'm just going to do it on my own. And that's really not how it works. You really need to unite with other people who have been in the movement for some time.
2: Now, you mentioned this this awful figure, this 53%, which I remember reading it and feeling sick in my stomach about... I mean, I'm not American, so I couldn't vote, but I have lived in America, and I still have friends there. Uh, And I felt really shocked. How do you think that happened? There's a lot of theories,
1: and you know, I hope that white people will get together with other white people and ask them because what I know for me is that 90, <laughs> 90, <laughs> um, <laughs> is that, you know, ninety-four percent of black women voted for Hillary Clinton, whether we liked her or not. Mm. We have a history. With Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, that is not necessarily the most positive, but we went to the polls to do what we had to do on behalf of our children and our society and so I'm not really sure why white women would vote for a man who basically talked about sexually assaulting us all of us we're not going to separate um, i don't know why and I and I hope that those conversations are happening in people 's homes you know. I, I, I was so right after the march, I was on sort of a speaking tour for a while where people were just bringing me in to sit there and go, what the hell do we do? Like, we don't know what to do and we don't know how this happened. And I said to folks, you know, my son, when he leaves the house every day, he, he goes out into the world and as soon as he gets ready to walk out the door, I'm like, listen. Don't do this, don't do that, put this away, that's too much jury, you need, don't say this if you're pulled over by a police officer, you need to do these things, don't put your hands up. You know, I have this whole talk with him, and I know all the other black and brown mothers that, are, that I know are having the same talk with their children. And so I ask white women all the time, why is it so hard if I have to have a conversation that can often be degrading to a young black male? If I have to have that conversation with him, why could you not ask your mother who she was going to vote for? Why did you not have a conversation with your sister and other family members who live in places that maybe you don't see often, but why would you not feel the need to pick up the phone and ask them these questions? And so what the Women's March is doing is really trying to encourage people to have courageous and difficult conversations because we believe that that is one of the reasons why this happened. Not enough women were talking to other women and family members and challenging their husbands about what would happen if a man like Donald Trump became president.
2: Um, You you talked about the hell of a time you went through organizing it and the mansplaining going on about how to do protests despite Mm. your expertise Mm -hmm. in the area. Do you think that a, a lot of the criticism of the Women's March has had a sexist element to it. I mean, only, the, only a march organized by women that got the most people ever could yeah. be considered a failure by someone, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, there's probably been... There, I'm sure there is criticism. We haven't focused on it at all. So... I really can't tell you much about it because I know what I saw <laughs> yeah. and I know that what I saw has never happened before. So if nothing else, that was incredible. The fact that people found a place to to find some kind of hope in the middle of a, a time when it felt like a complete disaster. So for me, I know on that day, just on that day, I'm not giving a, um, I'm not trying to basically give a review of what will happen in the future or what the march will mean to the world. But I know that on that day, we won. Women won because we organized something that I do not believe men could have done on their own.
2: Um. Just back to some of the criticism you've had to cope Mm. with, um, you mentioned that it was especially bad for Linda Sarsour and something both she and you have been criticised for is your support of Louis Farrakhan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile the work, the the amazing work you do with some of his views like women should put their husbands and children before their careers? So, well, you know, I'm not going to try
1: to... Uh, speak on the minister's behalf. What I will say is that I've talked to him, and I know that he supports us as women leading and being a part of the organization, the Nation of Islam. But you know, when I think about my grandfather, right? I used to, and my father, even now, I look at them and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Like <laughs> half the time, things that they're saying, I don't agree with, and they. Definitely don't agree with me on half the stuff that I say.
2: I think we at have all family members. My
1: son of. is completely crazy as far as I'm concerned. Brian, we were on our way to dinner yesterday, and I talked to my son for 30 minutes, trying to understand what type of human are you. Like you're different. <laughs> you know, he's very different. None of us are going to agree on every point. None of us. I think that what is important is that we have places where we can meet that we're working on healing and working on trying to ensure that we come out in a better space than where we are today. And so the minister knows. We've had conversations where I've said, you know, Brother Minister, I don't agree with that. And he has said the same to me. But there are some places that we do agree, and those are the areas that we work together.
2: Do you think for people on the progressive side of politics, especially women and especially women of color, Mm -hmm. are held to a higher level of scrutiny Mm -hmm. than than men advocating for change. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and, and,
1: and you know, we definitely, there, there's a little story about the women's march. I don't know how important it is to get a permit here in um, yeah. this country when it's time for you to have a march or something. But in the US, you, have, you, know, you need a permit, depending on what hat I'm, I'm on. Cause some days I wear my hat of, I don't give a hell, we're marching anyway, shut the system down, I'm not asking you for your permit. But when you have women and children and families coming to a place like Washington, D.C., it makes sense to get a permit to be able to have a march. I've worked for many men. I have worked for Reverend Al, as you said. I've worked for so many men, and I've done marches all my life. I know how to do a march in my sleep. I can plan a march. I have never, ever, ever been asked about a permit by a national newspaper every day. Once we received the permit, the Washington Post put a picture of the permit on the cover of its newspaper. All the other things happening in the world, the Women's March permit was the cover of the newspaper. That was because we were women.
2: Unbelievable. <laughs> and still organized the biggest march in U.S. history. Yeah. And raised our children. And-, and cooked our food and did all the other
1: things that we had to do at the same time. <laughs> And there was no violence. <laughs> and there was no violence. And 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 the thing with that is like people are like there was no violence, violence. I've been marching for over 20 years. I've almost never been involved in a march where there was violence. I think I've heard you say this before. Almost this is never. really interesting. I mean, and the reason why I say almost never is because you know people are so savvy. They'll go and they're like pull up the one time when there was like a man step on another person's foot mm. or a woman, you know, pushed someone by accident and it's like, oh, there was violence. So I'm saying almost never. Yeah. But I'm I pretty much don't remember ever being a part of a march where there was violence. And so this idea that somehow, again, that there was going to be violence. If we had been men, I do not believe that the same questions would have been asked of us.
2: Well, that also is really interesting in terms of, you know, Trump's equivalency between the the uh, white nationalists and the counter-protesters. Oh, my gosh. Because, I mean, the, the, the right wing would like us to believe that the left comes armed exactly. and, and ready for violence. And and as you say, it's just not a reality. It's not a reality. It's fake news. That's <laughs> the one thing that I agree with Donald Trump about, fake news. <laughs> he's he's the one spreading it, though. He, he spreads it, he does. He um, is fake news himself, but that's a whole different <laughs> conversation. Uh, um, we... We'll have a question. Oh, there's quite a few people. I should stop asking my own questions. Sorry.
3: I, I don't know if this is even going to capture... There we go. Women's there March. Go. I see your T-shirt. <laughs> um, so thank you for your powerful speech. But um, So the title of your speech is, you know, it says Women's March, and then I looked around when I came in here, and it's mostly women in here, and I feel like this happens every time I go to an event on or you know, even an art show or something about and has some sort of women-specific focus, and then I look in the audience and it's all women. So I was wondering if you had anything constructive to say about mobilising people who have been... ..who the system... ..like, who benefit from the system and have been taught to be complicit Mm -hmm. in just kind of going about with, like, for example, white people and men... Yeah. Right.
1: And men, right? I, you know, I think we ought to use these opportunities as moments to get organized, to get our thoughts together, and then we have to go to where the people are that we want to talk to. I tell people often that if you want to organize and, and try to support people of color, asking them to come downtown to some area that does not necessarily represent their interests is not gonna work. You actually have to go to where they are. So if men are the group that you're trying to reach, you should go to where men hang out and talk to them. Maybe some pubs, maybe some sports arenas, <laughs> you know, maybe some of those places, literally, and go to them and try to do the, the, the work there. This work of social activism is hard work. It's just like if you're running for office, a campaign is hard work. It is hard work to organize people. You actually have to put your feet on the ground. One of the things about social media that is dangerous is that people seem to think that that phone or the Twitter account or whatever is going to take the place of actually touching people hand-to-hand, one-on-one, and it does not we still have to do that work. So I would suggest that if you are looking, if people are not in your area that you want to reach, you should go and find where they are and really take your message to them.
2: And Num- there's a number man two. back there that I think wants to ask. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> we <We'll> welcome him. <laughs> yeah. Are you the only man who came? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Oh, The two men who came are up <laughs> asking questions. <laughs> Um, I'm just wondering, it's like a
3: pleasure to protest in Australia, but when you see things like Charlottesville, where you see the alt-right and how they were so heavily armed, even though people didn't necessarily know about it at the time, I'm wondering what you think the future of America's gun laws is and whether there will be someone who will stand up in the political, you know, field and say, enough is enough, instead of, we're not going to take your guns, that's not what we're about. And I'm wondering how you see... That moving forward. So, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to
1: lie. That's probably the thorn in my side every day. That's the hardest work that I do is trying to stand up against this gun lobby and looking at the National Rifle Association. I don't know if you have not seen an ad that we've been posting on the Women's March page. You should go check it out where Dana Lash, who is their spokesperson, does an ad that basically calls for... Uh, people with guns to show up at protests to stand against those of us who are on the left, if you will. Again, claiming that the left is there for violence. Again, saying that we're violent, but this is a gun organization that's talking to its members that have guns, who many of them have not had the proper background checks. That's a whole different conversation. And tell people who may be mentally ill, who may have all types of challenges. And I'll take that back because just because you have a mental challenge does not mean that you are not capable of operating a weapon, but you understand what I mean. People who may not be stable, telling them that they should show up at protests with guns. When we from Women's March sent the letter to them saying that your language is very dangerous and you need to take this ad down, instead of them taking the ad down, they created a second ad and they put my face in it. And then when they finished with me, they went on to begin to target all of the other women, all of the women of color in the Women's March. Bob Bland, as a white woman in the Women's March, who was also a leader, they never put her in one advertisement, one ad at all. It was only the women of color that they talked about us. They said we were dangerous. They put our faces, our names, and then soon after, our home addresses ended up on the on the internet. All types of crazy things happened. Um, I mean, yeah, these people are like really, really crazy that we have to deal with. And I think that, you know, back to the point that I was making about all of us coming together, the thing that I am constantly pounding the pavement on in the U.S. is that we have to stand up stronger and harder than these people who are mobilized against us. And we can win. We have won bigger, stronger fights. But people really just seem to believe, well, these folks are too organized, they're too coordinated, we don't want to touch it. But what I will tell you is that I personally am never scared. So we are going to continue to mobilize against them and continue to just pushing our electors until we get people to grow some backbones and stand up against these people.
2: Um, Now the gentleman on microphone one.
0: Thank you.
3: Many of us share your disillusionment over the election of Donald Trump, Um, but, in particular, you've expressed surprise over how 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. As requested, I won't make a lengthy statement, but on reflection, it seems to me that Donald Trump wasn't so much elected as Hillary Clinton was not elected. Can you make some comments on whether Hillary Clinton was a seriously flawed candidate?
1: So, you know, again, I'm always in trouble because my mouth, I talk too much, and sometimes telling the truth is not a good thing, but people do know that I had some very serious issues with Hillary Clinton. Um, In fact, in the primary in New York, I voted for Bernie Sanders. And I don't necessarily love him either, but I did not necessarily think that Hillary Clinton was the right person at that time to be running. What I know is that she was more qualified than Donald Trump. That is 100% down, hands down. There is no way that you look at these two people and make a decision for Donald Trump if you have your right mind. There's no way. There's no way. <laughs> so, yes, I do think that there was some part of, you know, people just not necessarily wanting to vote for her. But then I had to ask white women about that. It's like, you know, I really hope you all are having these conversations at home, because here's the first time in history that you are able to break this glass ceiling. You can vote for one of your own to become the president of the United States, the highest office in the land, a super qualified individual who would have protected, at least we know, things like your health care and other very, very important issues. Why did you not vote for her? It doesn't make sense to me. I'm very, very confused. Me
2: too. <laughs> um, oh, we've got lots is of people waiting. It. Only five minutes. Let's, let's. Are these both babies? No. This, no. Is, a grown... no. this is a grown person. Let's, but let's this is a baby. Give number one a chance. You're a baby. Can you stand on your tiptoes? How old are you? Hi, sweetheart. Hi. What's oh, your name? Hi. Mia. Mia, I love you,
1: Mia. <laughs> Please. Hi, Mia. Um. What can do, what can kids do to help? Oh man, that
2: is such an incredible (laughs) question.
1: The first thing you can do is come and meet with my son and tell him that he needs to be better towards his mommy. (laughs) Can you do that for me? Um, But you know, there are so many things. One of the things that I thought, again, we talked about the signs the signs at the marches. There were signs with glitter and all types of things. You could tell that young people had been up with their parents helping them put these signs together. That was such a big part, there are now Uh, Different exhibits in museums with these signs. Young people bringing hope and light to the march. And I think that it's also young people, people think young people don't know what's going on. They know a lot of things that's going on. When I was young, I used to go to my parents and say, listen, there's a problem with the school lunch program. I heard about it. (laughs) I don't know much, but I know that they were in there talking about something related to not having money for school lunch, and you should probably go down there and find out what's going on. So I would say to you, Mia, pay attention. Read everything that you can get your hands on and don't feel like you don't have a voice. And our parents have to empower you to be able to come and give the information. You bring to the table whatever you think you have. If you if you know that there's a, a bus ride for a march happening and you can make lemonade so that you can raise some money to pay for some of the needs of the bus and the organising, that makes you a valuable and critical component of the organising. So you are valuable, and you should know that.
2: We've only got a couple of minutes left, but a few people. So we'll we'll take these two questions from microphone two, and then we'll have to... Oh, we'll try to get three in. So you're the three last. Okay, let's go.
0: I'll be quick. Thank you again for your really powerful speech. Um, one thing that I still find quite shocking post the election of Trump is still how divided the left is. And I feel like the biggest critics of the left actually come from within, just like you mentioned, like, oh, certain people didn't want to, like, certain women of colour felt um, abandoned by white women, which is why they didn't want to join the Women's March, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a, I feel like there's a huge litany of um, criticisms against the left, which does not allow it to come out in the same sort of unified force. What, as post the Women's March, I don't, know, I don't know if a lot of the momentum has been sustained. So what sort of recommendations do you have or how do you see this playing out where everyone should at least try to start seeing things through an intersectional lens, etc., to at least stop that criticism or move beyond the criticism so you can actually be a more united force against Trump? and the bigotry?
1: If I had the answer to that, I would get a <laughs> Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I'm, I'm searching
1: all over high and low for the answer to that because we, we tear ourselves up mm. within, um, from within. Um, and it's like a cancer. It's like people have gotten so comfortable with fighting one another that they can't even see the path towards standing together. But hey, I'm a realist. You know, My mother was a, is a realist and I am a realist. We are catching so much hell, and it is going to continue. We're going to be forced to have to work together. Because let me tell you, in the women's march space, there were people who could not stand the sight of one another. Like, it was like, I, I, don't, I, I would never work with you ever, ever. But they had to go say, but can you help me do this one thing? Because if, <laughs> if we don't get the lights up, the whole march is going to fall apart. So I need your help. And we sat together and we worked together and now we're friends people who we were running around throwing stuff. I hate you. You hate me for whatever crazy reasons. And when the march was over, after we accomplished something great together, we found out that the things that divided us were not as important as what brought us together. And that's the space that we're working from now. And I would just say, you got to get out there, be authentic. And, you know, as a woman of color yourself, you know, I think that other women who are not women of colour have to allow you to feel your pain and to say what it is that you need to say and then still embrace you and work with you.
2: <laughs> OK, we'll have to be really fast. So we'll go to the gentleman over at yeah, yeah, two go. and then we'll go to
0: you. Yeah. Yeah, hi, Tameka. Um, hi. I'm interested with the success of the Women's March and also Charlottesville and all that, whether in America there's enough momentum going now that that will continue through so that you can um, succeed in the um, uh, midterms... In the midterm elections, ..which is so important that I think people are missing, whereas if you can overturn the Republican houses, then suddenly the game changes and then follow that through to the uh, the full term.
1: Exactly. Um, In
0: other words, people come out and actually vote because Trump got elected on a minority of Americans. A lot did not come out and vote for whatever reason because it's not compulsory there do you think that can now carry through with the number of people we've got on the ground?
1: You know, um, I'm I'm over here yarning because I don't know what time it is. Like It's like (laughs) yesterday at one time, and I'm just like, oh, excuse me. But let me say um, that the reason why Women's March became an organization is exactly that. We have a conference coming up October 26th until the 29th in Detroit, Michigan, where we are going to be doing nothing but organizing towards the, the 2018 election and helping people understand how to impact their local communities. It is really, really important to us that we take the momentum from the march and turn it into some victories in the 2018 election and again in the general election in 2020. Um, that, is, that is the foundation of our work every day right now. So you are spot on that that's where our eyes have to be focused, that's where we have to be looking, is how do we go from people marching in the street to people actually showing up at the polls to change their local politics. And that's what we're working on. Thank you.
3: Quickly. It's 11.30 in New York right now, so that's why you're tired. At um, night. My name's okay. Re- <laughs> Rebecca Turnbow. So um, I was hoping one of the other or- organizers of the Women's March, Sydney, would come up, but I'll just do it. Anyway, Danny brought Mia to the march. Danny was holding our sign. So she's doing the greatest thing of bringing her child to marches and protests. So Yay. exciting. Um, thank you so much for the talk. It was inspiring, it keeps us going. It is a long, hard slog and we're excited to have you here Thank um you. two questions um that we came up as a group in our monday night na- meetings are is what do you think the um how do you think the global impact can help push this along um we work with london geneva have folks all over we're trying to get india in we're trying to get thailand folks so how do you think the the global mark or the global movement can help push this along um, and just to let you know we work there's probably half Australians, half Americans that come to our meeting and we work on local issues. We're working on marriage equality right now and we also work and kind of talk about the American stuff as well. Um, And then the second one, what's the anniversary look like? So those (laughs) are my two questions.
1: (laughs) Thank you. So the anniversary piece I don't have an answer to. I'm definitely not going to get in trouble. I may be on vacation somewhere on the anniversary. I'm like, the thought of planning another march is like, oh my God, it's (laughs) like, uh, I don't know, it's like uh, post-traumatic, we'd call it stress disorder. Just thinking about it from the stress that we went through, but it may be necessary. And we may not make it to the march, to an anniversary before we have to mobilize in that way again. So I don't know. Um, But we're looking forward to the fact that you will definitely be organizing here. So we're straight. We've got one country on board already. (laughs) Great, great. And in terms of the you know, what the global movement means. I mean, I think that the more that you all do here locally, again, it encourages people in other places to say, I can do the same thing. You know, people need to see women leadership winning. They need to see that. And winning doesn't necessarily mean that you change the politics, but that you actually have historic Um, efforts where you're bringing together all different types of people and displaying that for the rest of the world to see. Because then they begin to see themselves in you. And I know this to be true because even in my own organizing in New York, we've done some incredible work. We've been able to get $20 million um, uh, as a part of a fund to give to grassroots gun violence prevention organizations. When we did that work in New York, people in Chicago and other places started saying, send me the documents. so that I can put this together and start working on it with my governor, my mayor, and the people in my particular state and, and city. And so I think that the best thing that you can do is to be the best organizer in your local area so that you are a beacon of light and hope for people in other places around you.
2: Thank you, everyone. And thank you so thank much, Speaker so Mallory, thank what you. a pleasure thank it was you. to great. be yeah. with you here today.
0: That was Tamika Mallory, urging us to take our activism beyond the protest. Next week on the podcast, we're taking a long, hard look at our jobs with Rutger Bregman, historian and champion of the universal basic income. Subscribe to Ideas at the House wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week.